As we fight for tomorrow, we have to also think about the impacts today. And that th therein lies the challenge, but the challenge that my community partners and my community leaders are up for. The words of Mayor Bruce Harrell there touting a Green New Deal, where the city plans to invest $6.5 million this year for environmentally sound projects and job creation too. But that spending plan, just the tip of the iceberg as the city prepares for the mayor's full budget presentation this week. What's the plan for investing in police? Where will money from the jumpstart tax on big businesses go? Plus, what's happening with a big pushback in the Chinatown ID over an expansion of a homeless shelter there? And what's the story behind a major ballot measure in King County for mental and behavioral health? Well, all these questions and so much more this week on Seattle News, Views and Brews, your Coffee Break political podcast. We will try to provide some answers here. I'm Brian Callanan. I'm a host on Seattle Channel, and the views expressed here are my own. I am joined by... David Croman from the Seattle Times. And David, I try not to start arguments as a rule, but I think I saw you tweet the other day that Deep Impact was the superior asteroid movie of the 1990s. Are you <laughs> saying you just never watched Armageddon? What's going on, man? No, I watched I watched Armageddon. I mean, I'm, I haven't seen any of them since the 90s. So That's I a good point, nor, nor I have I. I have a feeling they're both probably not that good. Terrible. But, uh, actually, no, I did try and rewatch Armageddon like maybe five seven years ago and i Tough. i couldn't make it through the first like half hour it was yeah yeah it's, it's pretty bad i yeah, was just thinking it, about it because of the the you know satellite crashing into the asteroid yeah a lot of armageddon comparisons but i feel like we should be making deep impact ah there we go i love it and yeah and uh bruce willis if you are listening to this podcast well i'll give it another watch and see if i can make <laughs> it through david thank you as always for joining me thanks to our listeners too a lot of you out there we appreciate you tuning in here to the podcast Thanks to City Grind Espresso, our background noise sponsor for the audio podcast on the first floor of City Hall. Make sure you check them out. Thanks also to our patrons. We would love to have more listeners support the show. If you can make it happen at the $10 level, what a treat that would be. A Seattle News Views and Brews mug would be headed your way, and you can join the elite mug club of the show. Plus, we will feature your photo on our mugshot of the week. This week, a big shout-out to Lily. Her mugshot with the bubbles in the background definitely the best one we got in this summer thanks for helping out the show lily thanks to all the rest of y'all please become a patron if you're not already that's seattle news views and brews on patreon finally thank you to converge media the video version of the podcast airs on converge wednesday evenings at seven all right let's get the party rolling with right here right now Okay, so it's city budget time, and we are releasing this podcast just a short while before the mayor offers his budget proposal to the city council. And David, I'm very interested, as is the rest of the world, on what the mayor plans to present when it comes to a police department budget. Marcus Harrison Green, I thought, had a terrific editorial in the Seattle Times talking about this recently. The section that really hit me was this. I'll draw out a quote. We repeatedly awakened to a backlash over the defund the police slogan but see no real structural changes to the institution of law enforcement, such as increased transparency on use of force, nor do we see drastic reallocations from it. So Marcus, in his piece there, was predicting a significant investment in the SPD, which is definitely trying to grow its numbers, a 30-year low in staffing. And David, I just want to get your thoughts on this. Has there been so much focus on steering away from the defund police, the, police narrative that we've lost sight of why this phrase came into being in the first place following the murder of George Floyd. Yeah, I, I do think that's a good point. Um, you know, some of the tenets of those protests were around not just reform, but, you know, an argument that the basic fundamentals and foundation of law enforcement was flawed and therefore um, should be torn down and something rebuilt in its place. Mm. You know, we, we 
even Council President Deborah Juarez, who you know is very vocal about the fact that she never signed on to the fifty percent uh, pledge, even she was, I think, had a quote talking about how you know it's not just a bad apple; the whole tree is rotten. Um, yeah. So you know, this was this was a widely shared belief at the time, and and I think that Marcus is right that that while there are still conversations around you know, alternatives to policing and, uh, you know, mental health response and all that kind of thing that yeah. there, there is, you do not hear conversations any longer about fundamental, you know, deconstruction and rebuilding of right. what law enforcement looks like. I, mm. I think that, I think that he's, he's very much right that any momentum on that has stalled or stopped. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's going to be an interesting, uh, excuse me, an interesting discussion when it comes to police budget numbers there. But I'm just looking at the raw numbers here, David. And the reality is we're in this $141 million hole the city of Seattle is as of the city's August forecast here. The council and the mayor, the current mayor at least, lay a lot of that at the feet of former Mayor Durkin. He used a lot of one-time funding for some projects that city really wants to continue in terms of equitable development and other priorities. And filling that gap, at least part of it, I'm coming around here, is going to come from the jumpstart tax on big business. So, again, just a background here, folks. This is a measure intended to invest in affordable housing and Green New Deal projects. It was directed, at least portions of it, large portions of it, was directed to filling general budget hole, general fund budget holes last year and the year before. And this year, Council Budget Chair Teresa Mosqueda, who authored the legislation, has said, okay, excess revenue from Jumpstart, the money above and beyond what it was supposed to bring in, using that to plug the budget hole, that makes sense. But she says, I don't want the mayor to raid Jumpstart. She's saying, don't give us an austerity budget. And my question is, how does the mayor walk that fine line? He definitely has his eyes on those Jumpstart dollars. Yeah, we'll see how he walks that line. Um, you know, in advance of the budget announcement, we're hearing from, uh, you know, his, his people in his office talking about how this budget is going to focus on fundamentals, you know, the basic services. They're they're hosting a press conference today at noon in, I think, like a pretty nondescript city building. Right, right, right. Of the Chinatown International District. So, you know, all of that, you know, when I hear we're going to focus on fundamentals and basic, basic city services, that tells me we're not making any big, huge, splashy announcement of some yeah. program we're funding. We're just going to spend the money we have and say that yeah. we're going to do it really well. And so yeah. I think that's a sign that you know, I don't think he's going to shoot for the moon on this budget or I would be surprised. Um, yeah. you, you know, I, I would imagine, you know, sort of like uh, Mayor Durkin did before, there's probably going to be a bit of push and, push and pull around the jump start. He's probably mm-hmm. going to want to use more of it than maybe Councilmember Mosqueda would want for those basic city services. Right. Um, I would imagine that'll be kind of a debate back and forth. That said, you know, I think even the fact that Councilmember Mosqueda has sort of signaled her openness and willingness to spend this money on sure. to fill, fill that gap is, is a, you know, I would say those two sides are probably already closer than they were in past budget seasons. That's a good, that's a good point. And I'm also very interested to see what council member Mosqueda is going to do with that excess money that I know is going to be in the SPD budget because they have not met their hiring goals this year. So those excess salaries that they were planning for there, what does happen to that extra money? There's a big battle over that last year. We'll see where that goes here. But I guess just looking forward with this, I think there are some structural problems involved here too, because the mayor's staff has actually told a number of departments, okay, present a budget that has a three to 6% cut. And so maybe that's not austerity, but he's definitely asking all these departments to try to figure out how to do with less And I'm just looking at these different budget numbers, and there's a predicted shortfall this year and next year and through the year 2026 of about $140 million. So 
I guess the bottom line for me, David, is there's going to be some some tough choices ahead. And I, I think that's going to be reflected in this year's budget, too. Yeah, I, w- I think so. Um, I, I don't know that that necessarily means layoffs, but uh, you could see that you, you could imagine a scenario where jobs go unfilled. Um, yeah. Things don't roll over uh, as much as they used to. But again, you know, the, the his message so far around, you know, we're going to invest in basic city services, I think, um, you know, I, I would be surprised if he makes cuts to things like, you know, road crews or something. Right, like right, that. right. But, yeah. But I do think maybe some of these programs that have been stood up um, over the last few years that these kind of, you know, yearly one-time programs, maybe they mm-hmm. lose a person or two yeah. if it comes to that. The I remember at the early part of the pandemic, I think Mayor Durkin also told the the mm-hmm. departments to, prep to make those kind of cuts or prepare for them. Mm-hmm. To prepare for, they never had to do it, as far as I right. know. Right. Um, but they should be. You know, this is they've they've gone through this drill before. They should yeah, right. they should have something kind of prepared. And I don't know that yeah. it'll be that big of a leap for them to kind of dust off those plans a little bit. Right. Right. Um, right. Yeah. It, you know, I don't know what that. I don't know what that means as far as what people see day to day. Maybe you know shorter hours on community centers, sure, sure, uh, shorter shorter hours in libraries. You know, I don't know what it'll be. Yeah, but maybe right. things, little things like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they tie these different pieces together. Behind all the budget talks, some very interesting movement this week on the Seattle De- Police Department's risk management demand analysis. So it's a clunky name, but the point here is SPD is trying to figure out how to manage nine one one calls that are coming in and change the response for low-priority calls so that armed officers aren't heading out to every scene. This is a follow-up to what the council often calls the Nick Jr. Report, the National Institute of Criminal Justice, which analyzed how a call was classified when it came in. So this new report from the SPD shows how the call was resolved. They studied just about 350 of these calls coming in. And when these calls are resolved, that can actually be different than an original classification. I looked into this, David, and looking at this report, I thought it was very interesting. So the cops broke down about 350 some odd different call types that came in from shots fired to reporting parking violations. They found out that 46% of the calls did not escalate beyond the usual police response. 23% could be downgraded into lower priority calls and about 31% had to be upgraded into a higher priority call. And I guess, David, we've touched on this before, but the challenge is how do you build a new system off of that? A lot of cities I know are trying to do this, but where do you start? Do you train the 911 call takers in a different way? Do you retrain officers on how to downgrade calls? A- any ideas on what this could look like? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it, my, my sense is a lot of this will fall on dispatchers, which is challenging, yeah. um, of course. Because, um, yeah, as we've talked about, you know, it's, it is one thing to sort of look retroactively at calls and say, mm-hmm. you know, this number didn't need this kind of response. But but knowing that in real time presents challenges. I know that Chief Diaz, uh, in a story in, in my paper recently, um, said that he, he thinks the number is lower than what uh, mm. other reports have come out about yeah. uh, w- what would require police response. Um, and then, you know, I mean, the I think for police, probably their worst case scenario is they conclude that something does not need a police response and then it escalates to something and something, right. you know, somebody, somebody gets hurt. And so right. sort of right. covering your bases on all of those is is really challenging. And, and mm-hmm. you know, from the time that I used to spend with police in these sort of situations, mm-hmm. I, the, the challenge is just really around communication. They're, they're yep. open to, my, my sense is they're open to uh, not responding to it, a lot of the calls that they do respond to because yes. 
you know, they, it's frustrating for them too when they show up and it's, mm-hmm. uh, they don't need to be there, but, yeah. uh, you know, hearing the dispatch, interpreting the dispatch, communicating back to dispatchers, what they're seeing, you know, all through all those steps to sort of, um, make clear that police didn't need to be there. That that's really right. the challenge there. I don't, I don't, yeah. I still don't totally know how you do that uh, efficiently, yeah. effectively. Right. And, and again, this is a nationwide issue. A lot of different cities are trying this, but this is kind of getting built from the ground up. One final point on this briefly here, David. I know the council's pointed out in the past that not all the calls require an armed officer. I think you're right in saying the SPD would agree with that. But this whole idea of starting up some sort of pilot program on, on the uh, with an alternative response here, I just remember the debacle that you wrote about splitting out parking enforcement officers from the SPD. They didn't have the ticket writing authority. You remember uh, David writing about this, hundreds of thousands of tickets canceled. I just have to think the council is going to be very careful when it comes to building a new public safety system, building even a pilot here. It has to have a lot of public trust in that system. That, that's going to be a crucial piece of this. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, the stakes on a parking ticket is are pretty low. Yeah, the right. Mm-hmm. Things, but the stakes on some other uh, public safety responses are a little bit higher. Of course. Uh, yeah. You know, actually, an, another thing that you just made me think of was uh, in that same story, Chief Diaz, he, he see, it was interesting. You know, I think when a lot of people talk about alternative response, they imagine mm-hmm. somebody other than police showing up. He, you know, he seemed to be talking more about you know, sort of co-response. Yes. That's, that that's, is, which I, I imagine that some people would not agree with and find problems with that. But in the grand scheme, I, I think it, you can see why maybe the chief of police is saying mm-hmm. that because it's uh, a bit easier and there's precedent for that. They already do that to a certain extent. You know, yeah. there are mental health calls and things like that, that go with, that do go with social workers, people from mm-hmm. downtown emergency yep. service center that work with police and actually respond with them. So it's a model that, right think is more easily expanded but um mm-hmm. anytime you're setting up a new department anytime you're mm-hmm. kind of creating a new arm of bureaucracy a new yeah. government it, it gets really challenging um i mean there's the normal setup challenges of implementation there's of course unions which uh, oh yeah are tricky to negotiate with and that that was i think part of the one thing that kind of went haywire with the the parking enforcement yeah. is the unions and the departments weren't really on the same page together yeah. um so yeah it's a it's a it's easier said than done to set oh, yeah. up a department. No, a, a tricky one ahead. So I wanted to make sure we moved on because we've got a big one up next year, folks. King County is planning to expand a homeless shelter in the Chinatown ID. Only problem is a number of residents there say they were never part of the discussion about it. What's going on? We're going to tackle this coming up on Now Hear This. All right, well, last week, you might have seen this, a number of protesters descended on Seattle City Hall, pushing back against a plan from King County to expand a shelter for homeless people in the North Soto neighborhood, just on the border of Chinatown ID there. This plan has been in the works for some time, but a number of residents say the outreach has been too little, too late. One person who says he's been doing business in Chinatown for 30 years had this to say at last week's city council meeting. I am uh, horrified to uh, learn that the government is going to put together a problematic uh, shelter campsite very close to Chinatown. So looking at this, we're talking about a facility that would be a hub for social services, 419 beds, room for RVs, tiny homes, mental health addiction treatment there at a cost of $66.5 million, mainly paid for with American Rescue Plan money. And David, protesters here are saying they haven't been listened to. They call this systematic racism. The council, the county council, that is, says we met back on in May about this, spoke with the neighborhood police public safety council in July about this. We're trying to get people inside. 
Are you concerned that concentrating so many services, so many shelter beds in one neighborhood like the Chinatown ID will create more problems of crime and drug use, et cetera? That's what the protesters are saying. That's always a tricky question. I mean, um, you know, when you look at certain statistics around when there's tiny home villages or shelters, you don't immediately see you know, it's there's there's certainly no conclusive evidence that shows that that is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I can I you know, it's been a hard year for a few years for the Chinatown International District. Yeah. They have, you know, of course, the pandemic and um, a lot of the food industry there were shut down. And then, uh, you know, they've they've had public safety concerns for a while. Uh, there is a lot of homelessness in the Chinatown International District. So, you know, mm-hmm. you can understand that it's a kind of tired and frustrated community yeah then throw light rail light rail location on top of that too yeah keep going yeah of course of course Mm -hmm. you know at the same time uh you know they try and build these shelters and these points of contact near where people will actually use them you know and there's certainly a we could have a long discussion about inequities you know why isn't there a homeless shelter in magnolia or of course um Mm -hmm. As things stand, you know, if, if you're looking for sort of the, the quickest uh, way to serve the most people, government officials tend to want to put them where those people are. And that's right. um, that happens to be more in Soto and downtown and Pioneer Square and uh, the Chinatown International District. So, right. Um, this is always, you know, we, we see this whenever there are new services or new shelters uh, mm-hmm. that come into play where um, people say, you know, they're in principle uh, in favor of. New of services, I agree with places yeah, to stay, right. but when it's near where they live, things get a little uh, hairier, and I think yeah. that's kind of what's ha- happening here. It just also happens that there's a lot kind of there's a lot more complexity maybe wrapped up in this particular community because of its because of its history and um, because right. it's you know lower income and, and immigrant. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, it, like I said, it's we, we see these sorts of conflicts on repeat basically whenever there are yeah. new shelters yeah. that are stood up. And interesting to me to see the Seattle Police Officers Guild sticking their neck into this one, too, siding with some of these protesters. That that was very interesting to me. And uh, I think, I don't remember if it was Washington State or King County Republicans. Um, That's right. Also, um, yeah. It, w- whenever there are conflicts like this, you know, what I, I'm not out there reporting, you know, what I would ask yeah. is, you know, where? Um, That's because, right. If not here, then where? Because you know, it is it is clear that the city and the county needs more of this this kind of shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that anyone argues with that. It's just whenever, like I said, you know, it, it just always gets a lot more tricky when you say, okay, you think we need more shelter. We're going to put it here. We're going to put it kind of near where you live. Suddenly mm-hmm. people don't, uh, are not quite as open to that as maybe they would have been in theory. So yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not going to say it's not complicated, um, but it's a service that the County needs and um, where that goes is, uh, Right. Yeah, <laughs> this this is this is the big big question always with with situations like this. I know the county, at least, is saying you know the question shouldn't be is this area the the perfect location, the perfect kind of shelter there, but what's the alternative? And, and that's yeah. uh, more people on the street. So uh, certainly something that will continue to be brewing there at the county level. There, and we'll we'll see it happens over the next couple of weeks. But I wanted to move on to another issue here. I, you thought it was it was difficult to find a place for a homeless shelter. How about a place for mental and behavioral health, some sort of facility of this nature? Well, Executive Dow Constantine pushing for a ballot measure coming up in April of next year to raise as much as $1.25 billion to build five regional mental health crisis centers. And David, your, your colleague, Esme Jimenez, wrote about this. Your reaction to what the county is proposing here? 
Yeah, I mean, this is it's interesting because in some ways this is kind of a money put your money where your mouth is moment because mm-hmm. um, if if there's one thing that we hear from almost every political persuasion uh, doesn't matter is mental health, mental health, mental health. You know, yep. uh, the state is among the worst in investing in you know their mental health system is among the worst in the country, and, and you know, I mean, for as um, tense as debates are around homelessness and uh, you know, police response and criminal justice. The, the thing that we hear from both the left and the right is, uh, you know, these people need more help, mental health treatment. They need more. There needs to be more help for these people. And so now here's the opportunity to do that. The, the thing is, you know, the thing that stood out to me is, so I think, I think the proposal had was going to have five mental yes. health facilities, I suppose. And yes. some, if not all of them will are, are supposed to be kind of, places you could walk up to if you needed mm-hmm. it, you know, that's right. clinics. And so then, you know, that truly, you know, you can't put a walk up clinic in, uh, you know, in a place where there is no people. I mean, the that's right. has to be where those people are. And so that's then right. you get the same thing of, you know, all right, we, we all say we, we support more mental health services and we mm-hmm. want more mental health services available. We're going to have to put that somewhere. Are you yep. going to, are those same people going to be as supportive of that when it actually gets built? Um, mm-hmm. You know that's going to be, I think, from for my money, the, the trickiest part of this whole thing. Assuming it passes, you know, maybe right. maybe it will pass, but I would think, you know, it's a lot of money. That's that's mm-hmm. a big levy that, yep. in the scheme of things. That said, um, like I said, that if there's one thing that we hear basically from everybody when it t- comes to homelessness mm-hmm. and uh, low level crime and things like that, is you know these people need more mental health support. So yep. Yeah. Here we go. Right. And, and it's, it's interesting. I'll, I'll get back to the money piece in a minute, but I think there are some different communities. I saw as me writing around, uh, writing about some of the areas north of Seattle shoreline, et cetera, where there are some cities that are trying to band together and do this very thing and build these different regional centers. And really when I think it was 2018, when governor Inslee was talking about, all right, we're decentralizing. We're not going with the old Western state hospital model. We need to have these things in the areas where people are and take care of folks, that this is the culmination of that five year, four or five years later. And so I'm interested to see how that plays out. And also, when you talk about the dollars, I think this is a very important piece of this. It's not just the facilities they're working on. They're working on trying to provide some higher wages to people who do these jobs because during the pandemic, yes, we've really needed these services. I think everybody could agree with that. But also during the pandemic, people have been leaving this this uh, profession in droves, psychiatrists, people who work with mental and behavioral health. I think that's an important piece of this as well. Yeah. These are really hard jobs and they pay really badly. (laughs) And so, um, you know, you get, you get this thing where you get 23 year olds, 24 year olds out of college who mean well, but they're inexperienced and they do it for a couple of years or at most, they don't make a lot of money. They get burnt out and they move on. Um, how do you, how do you slow that churn? I mean, I think having continuity is really important in this. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think it, it's harder to make the argument for those kinds of investments because people don't see it as much. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you talk to any service provider in the world, I would imagine mm-hmm. they're going to put this right at the top of issues, which is we just can't hang on to people because we're not paying them the, the, how much, as much as they deserve for the sort of really challenging work they're doing. Yeah, very challenging stuff. And 
It's going to be challenging in terms of dollars and cents, too. I, I don't want to overlook that. This is a measure that would cost about $121 per year for the average homeowner, and there are a lot of different issues on the ballot coming up with property taxes attached to them over the next couple months, so definitely keeping an eye on that, too. All right, up next, back to 3rd Avenue. What's it going to take to reimagine this roadway that serves such a crucial need for transit in our region? We've got the details on Transportation Talk. <laughs> David, you recently did a follow-up on the 3rd Avenue Vision story we've been talking about. The council actually approving this resolution this week to explore ways to make it not just for buses to move through on 3rd Ave, but for businesses too. What did you learn in putting together this story? Where do you see the city and the business community going on this? I mean, the first question is, uh, will this this conversation actually go anywhere? Mm -hmm. Um, We'll see. Uh, You know, I, I don't think it's a... I think this comes up every now and then, which is how do we kind of reshape third avenue it, what's interesting to me about it though is um its pitch is one that i think is more appealing to some kind of progressives in the city which is we're not we're not talking just about throwing more cops down there we're we're talking about a way to sort of quote activate that space, activate and do space it in a right more kind of holistic and sustainable way um and so you know the the idea is you can, you know, maybe maybe we change that corridor so that, you know, there, there's still the same number of bus traffic, but we, we do it with fewer buses somehow. We mm-hmm. kind of widen the sidewalk. So we just basically in, do whatever we can to make it a place that people actually want to stay rather right. than leave. Because right now, you know, Third Avenue is a really effective bus corridor. Mm-hmm. And it's at least right now, basically only that. Uh, yes. Just go there to get a bus to leave there. There's not a lot of incentive to stay at Third Avenue. And mm-hmm. so the really the question is, what what will it take to create that incentive for people to stay there? Um, and so this this kind of process, which I imagine will be long and yeah. probably expensive, is uh, <laughs> does, what what can be done to, to make that a place that people actually want to stay and therefore feel more vibrant and therefore... Yeah. Um, you know, create less opportunity for some of the disorder and activity that is not as desirable to flourish. I, I will point out, I'm talking with Councilmember Herbold and Councilmember Mosqueda on the Council Edition show this month. It's coming out in a couple of days on Seattle Channel. I was interested in talking to them about this because they really want to try to change the narrative, if you will, over transit is bad, like it, it attracts all these different problems. They're trying to say, well, we need to celebrate that and we need to preserve this throughway of, of transit here. And so I don't know if they're. Ha- I think they're trying to approach it from a both and. And I is that a possibility to try to preserve the amount of of uh, bus traffic that goes through there, and also make sure the businesses are taken care of? Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that's an important nuance, which is um, that I think the the council is trying to strike, which is yeah. In in their resolution, they they explicitly said you know we want to preserve the amount mm-hmm. of transit that's coming right. through. There. So it's not it's not an argument that the buses themselves or the transit itself is the problem here. It's that the the area around that has not Mm -hmm. been invested in, in any sort of meaningful way. So how do you, how do you keep basically that area as a transit corridor, uh, make it efficient and effective for people to take the bus there while also kind of rebuilding and rethinking the the space around it. Um, that's, that's the kind of balancing act, um, I, I don't think that there's appetite there to, you know, not have that same level of transit going through Third Avenue. Right, right. And this idea of maybe introducing cars back on there, that feels like a non-starter to the council. I know I heard that. And and just this idea of 
of making sure that businesses are coming back. I, I look forward to this, David. I heard from Muscada and Herbold that they really want to get together some, wait for it, stakeholder meetings. So you're going to see a bunch of groups out there, including the DSA and others, getting together to try to figure this thing out. So I, I think it's important to start this conversation. I appreciated the piece you put together on this. But we got to wrap up the show. And i got to tell you, folks, it's playoff madness for the Mariners. I am finding it too tough to watch the games a lot of times. David, my question is this. Can the M's pull it together? Where is that silver lining I can find after such a demoralizing loss to Kansas City over the weekend where the relief pitchers gave up 11 runs in an inning? Help me. What What do you got for me, man? Give me some good news. I think the only silver lining is if, if they can turn it around then uh, and, the, and, you know, Julio comes back and Eugenio Suarez comes back. Yes. Then you've you've got you've actually had your bench players play some time. You know, put yeah. some time in. They've got some okay. game experience. Your bench is a little deeper. Suddenly, Jaron Kelnick is looking okay, which yeah. is an opportunity he would not have had had there not been injury. So, okay, uh, if they can turn it around and they can get healthy by the playoffs, I think they would be in a good position to rebound from this because uh, you know then they're healthy again and their bench players have gotten some playing time. But the, the key the key part of that is they still have to make the playoffs they still got to get through we got a couple more weeks of nail biting to do here but david thank you that was a very good point and i'm glad glad you're on my side man as always good good stuff as always thank you david for joining me thanks everybody for listening out there to seattle news views and brews where you can always find out what's brewing in local politics this podcast available on all the major platforms and once again if you do listen to the show please support the show on patreon we couldn't do it without you thanks for watching on converge media too we'll see you next time Seattle News, Views, and Brews is an independent production of Callanan Media Services. Copyright 2022.